Good morning, church family. Oh. All the songs are really good, but man, that first one, I think I could sing that one every week. That is just lifting up. And of course, no accident, a very appropriate uh, for today's message. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. We will be uh, beginning our message today in verse 7, and I had every intention of stopping at verse 12, but I couldn't do it. So we're going to go all the way to 18. So it is another uh, pack-filled passage, and the The title of the message today uh, is called Gospel Grit, Grounded in God's Glory. It's a lot of G's. Gospel Grit, Grounded in God's Glory. It is a part two of last week, and uh, I didn't want there to be a part three necessarily, so we're going to try to finish it up. And so, if you don't have a handout, I think we're out but if everyone has one, great. But if, uh, if you would, just bow your heads with me uh, as we go to God's Word this morning. Let's pray and let's ask Him to do far abundantly above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. That is what we need. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you, Lord, because you are, because you first loved us. You poured out your love into our hearts so that we could see you and worship you and love you and love one another. Lord, I ask that your word today would bring great hope, great joy, great encouragement to the body. I pray, Lord, that as we, as we sung and as we read already today, that you would set each and every person's eyes on eternity. And not on this earth. Father, give us the heart of Christ. Give us the heart of Christ who is able to endure, who is able to persevere. He was able to be a, a bold gospel proclaimer, put the heart in us. Lord, may we leave here today changed. May the world see a people that is unlike them. May they see Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to try something new today. Will you please stand with me as we read God's word this morning? We're going to be reading starting in verse 7, going all the way through 18. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Now, growing up in the wolf home, okay, growing up in the Dave and Terry wolf household, uh, I remember my parents often saying things that defined what it meant to be a wolf or a member of this family. Certain things that were, that were said. On the, on the more serious side, I would remember being dropped off at school and, and hearing, now be nice to someone today. This is what wolves do. This is what wolves do. Or, go the extra mile. This is what wolves do. I remember that one. Told me that one all the time. On the less serious side, though, there were movies. There were movies that if you didn't like, well, you were kind of on the fringe of the wolf family. And if you're being married into the wolf family, you had to like these movies too, right, Abby? Don? Ash? You had to like these movies. Popeye, Robin Williams' version, of course. Three Amigos, staple. Which one am I forgetting, Jay? <laughs> Maybe Herman. No, not Pee Wee Herman. That was on the fringe. Rocky, thank you. Rocky. Man, if you did not like this movie, you might as well just change your last name. Okay? And I mean all four of them. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's all they made. Okay? In fact, tell <laughs> you what? In fact, if you ask my mom right now, she could probably find you a photo of me at around four years old, big poofy hair, because that's what the style was in the early 80s, a tight yellow shirt, and some very inappropriately short shorts, and boxing gloves that were far too big for me, because that's all I would wear was those boxing gloves, and I'd just wail in this heavy bag all day. I was Rocky. You see, Rocky, that was the family movie, and there was one scene in particular that I remember that made us love Rocky so much. It was in the second movie. You see, Rocky had just gone toe-to-toe with the world champ, and he was a bum. He was a nobody. And he went toe-to-toe with the champ, and the champ could not stand it. 
couldn't stand it. So, of course, the champ says, I want to rematch. I want to prove myself that this chump can't beat me. Because everyone says he won. Problem was, his manager wasn't having it. His manager was scared. And his manager, I remember he went up to him, sitting at his desk. He went, got into his face at the desk, and he said, I saw you beat that man like no one's ever beat a man before. And he just kept coming after you. He was scared because the man would quit. He may have been a bum, but he had heart. That's why we love Rocky so much. He wouldn't give in. He wouldn't give in. He would take beating after beating, but he just kept getting up. His focus was on the future prize of being the champ. We love this movie because it was impossible to beat Rocky if his heart was in it. If he lost heart, he was easy to beat. But when his heart was in it, he was impossible to defeat. And last week, we talked about this kind of grit, but in regards to ministry. In regards to ministry and being willing to keep preaching, right? Keep preaching the simple gospel no matter what was thrown at us by the enemy. We discussed the foundation of this grit, that it was in the conviction of that the new covenant work of the Spirit, that it was true. Like it's absolutely bedrock under your feet, more real than the roof over our heads, true and active to conform us into the image of Christ, which means that he's given us new hearts, new desires, new passions, new loves, like the ones of our Savior. To be conformed in the image of Christ is to be conformed into his image, which means to, have, to share his loves, to share the very things he was passionate about, which means we would share the same passion that sustained Christ in his life while here on earth. The very hope that sustained him is now our passion and hope. And so today, we continue this train of thought, but we, we dive a bit deeper. Meaning that the passion of this new heart that we should now share with our Lord, what is it? What is this new passion that we share well, if you want to know what someone's passionate about, look at how they pray. What do they pray for? So we go to John 17. There's only one thing that Jesus prayed for regarding himself. One thing. It was consistent. John 17 starts with, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. He continues later in the, in the prayer. He says, I have glorified you now, Father. Now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was made. The passion of Jesus Christ and all who share his spirit is glory. The glory of God. That's his passion. That's what sustains him. It's the glory of God. And so our main point today is same as last week, but with one word that's different. The main point is that the ministry of the Spirit 
is always producing steadfast ministers of glory. Is always producing steadfast ministers of this glory. Looking ahead to verse 15 and 16 of our passage today, it says this, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. It is the glory of God that keeps Paul from losing heart. Paul is saying that it is the glory of God that keeps him striving ahead, pushing forward. It's the glory of his grace revealed to him, namely in the gospel. And and it is the glory given to God in a life that is willing to suffer for the name, for the sake of the gospel. Both of these, glory revealed and the opportunity to have glory proclaimed is what keeps him going. You see, true glory received results always in glory proclaimed, a passion for glory proclaimed. You see, God's glory and our joy They are not at odds with one another. They are inseparable. It's the way he made us. It's the way he designed us. That our joy would be inexcribably tied to his glory. We were made to find our hope in him. We were made to find joy in him. We were made to be satisfied in God. Meaning we were made. This is the way you were wired. You were wired and made to marvel and exalt and praise and rejoice in his glory. That's what Psalm 16 tells us. It says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. The meaning of life. The meaning of life, the path to life, true life is to be in God's presence experiencing the infinite pleasure of marveling at his glory. This is eternity for us. If you're in Christ, that should thrill you. We can have it now too. Because as long as God is glorified, Paul can say this, Paul can know that God is working all things to magnify his name, then Paul is satisfied to endure anything to that end. Because joy is attached to it. Paul is really willing to suffer anything for his own joy because he knows his joy is attached to God's glory. See, Paul understood the assignment. He understood the assignment and he understood the cost. Following Jesus in a world influenced by the enemy, as we talked about last week, a world that hates God, hates Jesus, It means that you will suffer in this life. You will suffer in this life. If you walk with him. Particularly if you walk with him. If you're obedient to proclaim him as Lord, there will be suffering. Bosses will fire you. 
Spouses may leave you. Friends and family might disown you. And in many parts of the world, the religion of the enemy will kill you. I know this passage is weighty and it's heavy. And I don't come at it lightly at all because I know that when you hear the word suffering, you immediately think about your struggle right now. And I hope that's true. And I want you to know that as I've been reading this text this week and preparing it, I have been praying for you because I love you. I do. I love you guys. I'm thankful for you, and I know that many of you are suffering in, in ways that many of us have never experienced. Christ understands. Christ understands. And I want you to hear today four ways in which your suffering for the gospel brings God glory. Four ways in which your very suffering for the name brings God glory and therefore hope and strength to endure, but with joy. You can endure with joy. Number one. Number one, our suffering makes God's strength visible. Our suffering makes God's strength visible. Look at verse 7 with me. It says this, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Whenever we see the words like but or therefore or for at the beginning of a verse, it should always make us look up at least one verse, if not more. Let's look up one. In verse 6 it says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we say, yes, what a glorious truth. And what a glorious work of God. Yes, what a glorious calling to be, as he puts it, givers of light. But lest you think I'm bragging, we have this treasure, but not as a crown on our head. We do not have this treasure as a crown on our head, but as a treasure hidden and what he calls earthen vessels or jars of clay. Coming off such a powerful statement, Paul is quick to remind us that we do have power. We do have power. We have this amazing treasure, meaning we have the gospel, which is a fountain of living water bubbling up inside of us to quench every thirst. What a power and what a treasure. It is the light of verse 6 that broke in, but he says it's also hidden inside of weak, fragile, and unimpressive people. Why would God do this? Because this is not the way we would do it. This is not the way we, imagine, imagine hiring for your company and saying, I'm only going to find people that are the absolute worst for the job. Nope, too talented, I don't want them. Nope, too good looking, no thank you. No, they speak too good, no thank you. They show up on time, no thank you. I want that guy, right? Imagine, no, no one would ever do that. It would never happen, right? God's ways are much more beautiful than our ways. 
as he seeks to magnify him, not us. Verse 7 says so. He says, it says, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. The reason God has, in his wisdom, decided to use weak, fragile, insignificant, sinful human beings to carry this treasure and to contain such power, it is to make clear that that power that we have unto salvation, this power that we do have in us to persevere, this power that we do have clearly and only of God. I love what Paul Washer says. This is, this, is, this is awesome. He says, this is our problem. We think we are too weak to share the gospel. We think we're too weak to go to hard places. We think we're too weak to be useful in the body, too weak to fulfill our calling. We all think we're just too weak. And if that's true, the problem isn't that you're too weak. It's that you don't know how weak you are. You haven't come to realize just how weak you really are. You see, our weakness, our weakness is not a hindrance to the gospel. It's vital. Recognizing how weak we actually are, it is essential that God may get all the glory. Verse 8 continues. He says, this weak vessel says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. How could Paul say this? Do we understand the affliction that Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel? These were not overstatements. These were not overstatements. How could he be so afflicted, so perplexed, so hunted down all the time, so persecuted, so violently struck down, which means to be like set back. Like he thinks he's making advancements and then he takes a huge step back. Talk about discouragement. How could such a fragile clay pot take so much suffering and not be crushed by it? Not despair, not feel absolutely forsaken, and not just feel utterly destroyed and feel like wanting to give up. See, he knew that Jesus was all he had. He knew Jesus was all he had. So many times we hear people say, Jesus is all you need. No, he's not all you need. He's all you got. Paul understood that. He didn't think that I have some strength. I just need a little bit of Jesus to add to that strength. He said, I am nothing. Christ is everything. He's all I have. He knew his weakness. He understands his inability, but he had Christ. His treasure. His gospel. And that was enough for him. It's enough for us. It's enough for us. We can say with Paul, afflicted, which means pressed in on, just utterly like massive amount of force just being pressed in on you. That's what afflicted means. But we can say with Paul, I will not be hopeless. I will not be hopeless. God is sovereign. He is good. The gospel tells me so. 
confused by life. Why are so many crazy things happening to me? We can say with Paul, I will not despair. God is wise. God is wise. He's always working to glorify himself in and through this. The gospel tells me so. Hunted to be killed. Jesus said he would never leave me. Not one hair of my head will be harmed. The gospel tells me so. Struck down and set back. I'm not dead yet. I'm still breathing. I'm still breathing. God can still work in and through this to make his name known. And until God calls me home, I'm immortal. God tells me so. It is the treasure of Christ. What I mean is it's the treasure that we have, like I said, more true than the floors under our feet is God's love for you in Jesus Christ. God of all creation loves you. What? I should astound you. His love for you in Christ and this alone will sustain you in suffering if you can get a grip on it. If you can meditate on it and treasure it. It will get you through it all. Because when jars of clay are not crushed, but they are sustained by the love of Christ. Who gets the glory? Christ gets the glory. God gets the glory. So what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? What will you preach to yourself tonight when you lay your head on your pillow and all the negative thoughts rush in? What are you treasuring? What you treasure now will be revealed in suffering. What are you treasuring? We must understand. We must understand this, that the call to missions, the call to missions, or the call to be useful in God's kingdom, it is not a call to anything other than weakness. It is a call to be weak. It is a call to know your weakness, to come to the end of yourself, just like when you got saved. It is a call to utter dependence on Christ. Missions in the home, moms and dads. It's a call to be weak. It's a call to be dependent. Students, sharing the gospel on your campuses, in your schools, it's called to be weak. It's called to be faithful and just to proclaim Him. Pastors, it's called to be weak. It's called to be low. His aim is His own glory. He will not share it with you. And so, if you want to be useful for Him, then you join Him in magnifying Him and not yourself. You join him in resting in his work through you, not in your own work to accomplish the mission. He gets the glory that way. And so if suffering comes to reveal your weakness, you praise him because he will get the glory in your weakness. And so God is glorified in us when we are sustained through suffering by his strength. I mean, think about this. When was the last time anyone ever said to you, man, your life is so easy. How do you do it? I don't understand. Just, everything just seems to go so well for you. Where do you get the strength? No one's ever said that. 
No one has ever said that. It's only through hardship. It's only through hardship sustained by the gospel where God gets the glory in our weakness. So rejoice. Rejoice in your suffering. God is getting glory so long as you are trusting him through it. Number two. Number two, our suffering makes Christ's life visible. Our suffering makes Jesus' life visible. Verse 10 says this, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And so Paul is just kind of continuing this thread, saying in verse 10 that he is always carrying in his body the dying of Jesus. And then in true Pauline fashion, he says it again in just a different way in verse 11. He says he's constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 10 and verse 11 are basically saying the same thing, just in a different way. And he's saying that the gospel-centered life, it is not a life of of misery. Okay, I want you to hear that. The gospel-centered life is not a life of misery, but it is a life of risk. It is a life of risk, meaning every time you open your mouth to proclaim that Christ is Lord, you are taking a risk. When you take up another evening to show hospitality, you're taking a risk with your time and your energy, your bandwidth. You're taking a risk with your bandwidth on the smaller scale of risk, but a risk nonetheless. When you're willing to take the gospel to another country or you're willing to take the gospel to your neighbor, you're, you're taking a risk. It's risky. When you adopt, when you foster, you're taking risk. When you invest your money in the gospel, it's a risk. The gospel-centered heart is a risk-taking heart. It's a heart that says, I want to take the risk. I want to lay it all down. I want to leave an open check for the Lord to say, whatever you wish, I'll go. And I know it's going to be risky. I know it's probably going to be dangerous. Christ is worth it. Your glory is worth it. Not a heart that's addicted to safety, self preservation, or self care. It's not a heart addicted to those things. Paul is saying, Look, look, this is, this is my life. This is, this is my life. I've, I've seen a gospel so glorious, I've seen a love so glorious, so holy. I've seen a king so lovely, so worthy. That I, and I also, I also, on the other side, I see a world so desperate. I see a world so lost. I see people who are like sheep without a shepherd that I must point them to him. I must do it. But to do that, that means I must face the likelihood of death constantly. I wouldn't change a thing. 
Remember, being conformed into the image of Christ means that we're growing in the heart of Christ. It's a, it's a process of growing into being more like him and his loves, who is willing to not just risk his life, but he laid it down freely. It was not a risk for him, it was a surety. Before the foundations of the world, he was already there. He was already decided. He gave it up, and he gave it up into the hands of sinners. And he did it for the love of his enemies, for the love of his sheep, and ultimately did it for the passion for God's glory. He did it out of a passion for the glory of God. This is how we share his heart. We love the glory of God. We find joy in the glory of God. We find satisfaction in the glory of God. And so therefore, anything that brings him glory, we say, amen, I want in. I don't care what it costs. Colossians 1.24, Paul would say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He says, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And so to be clear, Christ's affliction, his afflictions and death, they lack nothing in regard to salvation. They lack nothing in regards to justification. He said, it is finished. But what is missing is the presentation of his suffering to the world. The church, Paul says, which is the body of Christ in the world is to reflect his suffering to the world. How will the world see in an understanding way the love of Christ for them in his suffering if it's not visible in the church? If we're not willing to lay our lives down as he did, how will they see it? How will they know? It is in our willingness to suffer just as our Savior did for the gospel that the world will see the value of the gospel and therefore see the life of Christ. Paul is saying, look, I've seen the way Christ suffered for me. I've seen it. And it's a treasure to me. In fact, it's a treasure because it produced life in me. So I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to proclaim the same message, the very message that got Christ killed. I will proclaim it. And in doing so, I make manifest his suffering to those who hear the message. And so death worked in Christ to produce life in us. So now our suffering... And our willingness to risk our time, our willingness to risk our money, our willingness to go and give up our health, to risk our jobs, our families, our friends for the gospel will make visible the heart of Christ. That they may see him in you. 
It will, as verse 12 puts it, work life in those who are watching. So death works in us, but life in you. Our willingness to risk our bodies for the gospel puts Christ's suffering on display, bringing him glory. This doesn't just mean going into places like Afghanistan. We do all kinds of things that we protect our bodies from all the time. Namely, in America, it's stress. Cortisol, the deadly killer. Let's just lower our stress levels. Let's just keep things as comfortable as possible. We don't want to be stressed out. We don't want to burn ourselves out. Paul would disagree. Lay your life down for the gospel. Offer your body as a living sacrifice as a worthy and acceptable sacrifice because it brings him glory and there is tremendous joy and hope in that. You can persevere with his glory in mind. Number three, our suffering makes his praise visible. Our suffering makes his praise visible. Verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Again, Paul would not relent. He would not be swayed from preaching the gospel, from preaching the true gospel. The very truth he has come to believe, he will speak no matter the cost. But even if it should result in death for him, he won't fear because he knows that the very God who raised Jesus will also raise him up. Just amazing to me how how true the resurrection is to Paul. And I know it's true for us. But I don't think we live like it. I know I don't. We live as like this is the only life we have. This is the only body we have. This is the only world we have. Paul got it. He knows that there is a life to come and it's promised to him in Christ. So he can let go of the life he has now. This is the type of faith the psalmist had in Psalm 116. This is who Paul quotes here in verse, I believe in verse 15 or 13. The psalmist says, you've rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. How confident is that? I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. In my affliction, I believed what he's saying. 
Point being, the psalmist was trusting God in the midst of adversity, knowing that he would be ultimately rescued from death. So Paul shared in that sentiment, in that faith. But again, Paul adds that not just he will be raised, but all the saints. He says, with you. With you. The saints here in Corinth and all those who would come to believe the gospel through him, through this ministry. Which is why he says in verse 15, it's, it's all for you. All the suffering, it's all for you. The pain, the affliction, the life it produced in you today, knowing that it'll produce a heart of joy in you today, a life in you today, and a praise in you today, but also for eternity. A joy for eternity. With new bodies. To which he says, I love this, so that, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Here's the real reason. Here's the real passion of Paul. Here's the passion of Paul sharing in the passion of Christ. It's the passion of Paul for the grace of God to abound to more and more and more people. Why? So they can be freed from hell? So they can just be ushered into the kingdom? Yes, absolutely, 100% yes, but more than that. So much more than that. It is so that Christ may get the praise that is due to him. For those that have seen the worth of Christ, that have seen the magnificence of his glory, how lovely he is, how precious he is, and have clung to him, the response is, my worship's not enough. My worship is not enough. He is worthy of more worshipers. He's worthy of your kids' worship. He's worthy of your neighbors' worship. He's worthy of the Africans' worship. He's worthy of South America's worship, Romania's worship. He's worthy of the whole world's worship. More people praising him for the glory of his grace. The gospel abounds to more and more people then we see people turning from darkness to light. They go from shaking their fists to praising him, and then he gets the glory. What a joy we get to have in participating in the mission of God to bring life into others and produce more praise for him. Is there any better mission? Is there any better calling? What do you identify as your calling? For those of you who are in Christ, what do you identify as your calling in life? The psalmist of 60, Psalm 67 says, this is his calling. He says, let the peoples praise him. Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and you'll guide the nations, the whole earth. He used to say, La, he wants you to think about that for a second. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us. Why? That all the ends of the earth may fear him. The only reason 
God has not zapped you up into heaven the moment you believed is because he's calling you to proclaim his name that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Many of you may have heard of this quote of the two men of the Moravian church. These are two young men. The Moravian church is one of the first Protestant churches in the early 16th century in Eastern Europe. On October 8th of 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for Danish West Indies. And on board were two young Moravian missionaries. Two young men. One was a potter. I thought that was appropriate. It's a jars of clay. One was a potter, and one was a carpenter. One was named John Leonard Dober, and the other was a man named David Nishman. Both were skilled speakers and ready to sell themselves into slavery. Because there was, a, there was a slave owner in the West Indies that wasn't letting any missionaries in. So they said, we will sell ourselves into slavery that we might reach these slaves. As, the, as they got into the boat and the ship began to sail away, they would look out into the, into the crowd that was watching. They would see their families and their church families weeping as they would leave because they would never see them again. And they would then link arms. The two men on the boat would link arms and they would cry out with one voice, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this would be the missionary cry of the Moravian church from that point on. In eternity, there will no longer be need for missions. Because all will worship Christ. But until then, missions exist to bring more worshipers to him. Again, think world missions Think home missions, think local missions, think all missions is a sacrifice of yourselves, of your lives to create, if God would so be gracious to will it, more worshipers of him through you. And so suffering for the gospel brings God glory as more and more people worship him. Therefore, we do not lose heart. No matter what suffering comes, we don't lose heart because God is going to be glorified. Paul would say that though our outer man is decaying, our our inner man is being renewed day by day. So number four, final point is this. Our suffering makes eternity visible. Our suffering makes eternity visible. Now, given all that we've talked about today, Boy, can can we see how easy it would be to lose heart in the flesh apart from Christ? As you meditate, as I've spoke so far, as you've thought about your own struggles, your own suffering, can, 
I hope you're saying with me as I've read this text, how did we do this apart from Christ? If not for the work of his spirit in us to produce in us a passion for his glory, that's the prayer. If you want to know, what am I going to pray for today? I want a passion for your glory. See, Paul says, even if our outer man is decaying in our meaning that our flesh or our bodies, even if they're getting worn out or dwindling down to nothing for the sake of the gospel, even if I look and my face is worn, I'm, I'm sleepless, I'm beat down, I'm on the verge of a heart attack, even then, I'm not going to lose heart. Why? Because my inner man is being renewed day by day by day. And this should automatically remind us of chapter 3. As we behold the glory of Christ, we are being conformed. That is our inner man. Our inner man is being conformed into his image from glory to glory. So we don't lose heart. We don't give in. We don't give up because our inner man is being renewed into a new nature. But I love how Paul tells us how that happens. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want you to see the parallels that Paul uses here again. Look at the parallels. He's comparing momentary versus eternal. We have momentary and then we have eternal. We have light versus heavy. Paul calls his suffering momentary. Beatings, whippings, floggings, shipwrecks, snake bites, rejections, city after city getting kicked out, churches, rejection. I mean, I can't even begin to describe all that he went through. And he calls it momentary. And by momentary, he means a lifetime. He means like just 80 years. It's just 80 years or so on this earth, which is a blip compared to eternity. Compared to the, the life that awaits us on the other side, it's just a few short years. He also calls it light. And the word that really describes like feather-like. <laughs> he calls his suffering, it's light like a feather. Momentary and light compared to the weight of glory that is to be revealed to him. He's looking to the prize. And he considers the weight and the worth and the glory of the prize to come, and he looks at his afflictions, he says, what afflictions? Romans 8.18 says that he compares his suffering to the glory he will see in eternity, and it's nothing in comparison. He says it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come. It's barely worth mentioning. But it's not meaningless. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless. Verse 17, I want you to hear this. 
Verse 17 is a promise from God to you. Verse 17 is a promise that if we get a grip on this, it will change the way we view suffering. We must have a proper theological view of suffering or else life will eat you up. You must have a theological view of suffering. Here's the promise. From God's lips to your ears, Lord willing, says, affliction done for the gospel is producing for you. Read that again. Affliction done for the gospel is producing for you eternal and weighty glory beyond all comparison. Do you hear it? If you are in Christ, God does nothing to you. He does nothing to you. Everything, everything is for you. Why is God doing this to me? Don't say that. He doesn't do anything to you if you're in Christ. It's all for you. Your suffering is not for nothing. Your your strife, your struggles, your persecution, your family burdens, your marriages that are tough, it's not meaningless. It's not a waste. There is a cause and effect here. There's a mysterious cause and effect that seems to say from this text that promise that your capacity in eternity to enjoy the glory of God is directly tied to the way you suffer for him in this life. It's directly tied to it. Does this mean we pursue suffering? No. We pursue Christ. We pursue his calling to proclaim the gospel. No matter what, though. Their eyes on the prize of the eternal weight of glory. So cancer, cancer won't keep me from looking to eternity. It won't keep me from trusting in and proclaiming the gospel. I won't won't look at my cancer and say, what is he doing to me? I'll say, okay, what is he doing for me right here in this? Difficulties in our relationships won't stop me from proclaiming the gospel to myself and others. All the everyday trials, all the everyday trials and sufferings of a broken world, they are designed for you, child of God. Like a father disciplines his son. They are all designed for you to capitalize on the gospel hope that is in you. So we won't waste it. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your suffering. Because as the world watches us, as they watch us pursue Christ and suffer for it, or, or suffer from this broken world and trust him in it, either way we suffer for the gospel. When you suffer in this life as a result of the brokenness of this world, and you say, I trust Christ in this, the gospel is still true in this, God is still good in this, you suffer for the gospel. And when you go into uncomfortable places, 
and say and preach the gospel in uncomfortable situations, you suffer for the gospel. Either way, Christ is exalted, and therefore we can have joy. Not just hunker down. Actual, sorrowful, but rejoicing type of life. Never wasting our pain. Never wasting an opportunity to enjoy glorifying him. And when that happens, what we're really saying to the world is, okay, yes, this is hard. Yes, this is painful. But this is not my home. This is not my home. I'm looking to eternity where there is a weight of glory awaiting me. And what I'm going through now is nothing compared to that. Isn't it interesting how trials in this life make us long for the life to come? That's on purpose. That's on purpose. It's funny how trials on earth allow us to see the hopelessness of earthly things. Unbelievers don't see that. Christians see, I don't want this world anymore. I want the life to come. I want the life to come. And that is by design. It is God's grace in your life. Romans 5 would tell us that the trials produce perseverance, character, and hope. Hope in eternal truth. Hope in eternal glories to be revealed. And it says, these will not disappoint. They will not put you to shame. You're not going to get there one day and say, whew, we messed up on this one. It's not going to happen. It's going to wow you to such a degree that if you didn't have resurrected bodies, it would kill you. It will absolutely overshadow any sufferings we ever had in this life. And so our suffering brings God glory as his people show the world that this earth is not our home. That our treasure is in heaven and not on this earth. That brings him glory. Romans 8 says this, We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. That's an eager waiting. For in hope we have been saved. In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. We don't hope in what we see here on earth. We don't hope in all the stresses and all the, all the circumstances of our life. We don't hope in that. Who hopes in what they see? But if we hope in what we do not see, with perseverance, and the world sees a person eagerly waiting for it. Our hope is not in this life, but the next. The eye that is set on eternity is not, and not on this earth, not in preserving our bodies, not in preserving our time, not in preserving our money, not in preserving our health, not looking at our circumstances, but looking to the glory that is to come. This brings God glory today, which brings his people joy, making all of it worth it. Amen.